3: Duke fans, hello and welcome to episode number 191 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Guys, we are somehow approaching 200. I don't understand how we've been around that long, but for those of you who have stuck around with us, we appreciate you. I am your host this week, Donald Wine, coming to you from Washington, D.C., somewhere out in the outer space that is Durham, North Carolina. We have Sam Klein. What's going on, Sam? Hey. Hey.
1: Uh, I was at the game on, I guess it was Saturday. Yesterday, Saturday. Well, get your days uh, of the week, Duke, week right. <laughs> Duke, uh, Duke beat the pants right off of Notre Dame, and I don't think that Mike Bray had anything to say about the referees after the game was over.
3: No, probably not. But we'll get into that in just a second. Uh, before we do that, our resident alien, Jason Evans is also here. Jason, hello, sir.
4: Hello to you as well. This has been kind of a big basketball weekend. We had a lot of NBA stuff going on with the Slam Dunk. Mm-hmm. We're going to be talking about Slam Dunk later on. We will discuss the Slam Dunk outrage later on on this
3: Oh podcast. yes. is going down. We I have thoughts on what I saw last night. So, Maybe before thoughts. we do that, before we do that, we're going to talk about some Duke basketball and yesterday was a great day for Duke basketball. Duke basketball hosted the Notre Dame fighting Irish. Uh, uh, well, apparently, apparently Notre Dame showed up and played a little bit of basketball, but it does not we reflect were not that a in nice the score. Host.
4: We were not a we nice were, host. We were terrible <laughs> hosts.
3: We, we dispatched them by a score of 94 to 60. Jason, we already started with, with that, and, and we're, I'll kick it to you first. What did you see from this game that made this so easy?
4: I mean the easy answer is Duke hit their threes in a pretty big way. I texted you guys at one point during the game a photo um of a moment in the second half. Vernon Carey is in the middle and the ball has just been passed to him. He is surrounded, every single one of the guys are are, are outside the three point line um by uh by Matthew Hurt, Trey Jones, Joey Baker, and Alex O'Connell. Again, all four of them are outside the three-point line, and you can see the entire Notre Dame team is has their heads turned and they're watching Vernon Carey with the ball because they're all terrified of what Vernon Carey is going to do to them in the post because he, is, he was incredibly efficient in this game, as he quite often is. But you can see the four Duke guys around the perimeter, and every single one of them is ready to put up a three-pointer the moment Carey kicks it out to them. And for Notre Dame, I think they just weren't able to figure out. They couldn't pick their poison. They couldn't go, oh, let's stop Carey and let Duke shoot threes. Or let's shoot the threes and let Carey do his thing. They weren't able to do either one of those. So Vernon Carey was scoring inside. Matthew Hurt, when he went down in the post, scored very effectively inside. Javin Delorier scored inside. You name it, they were able to score on the interior. And when the ball went to the exterior, when the ball went out beyond the three-point line, Duke was raining down threes. We hit 45% of our three-pointers. Now, I'll tell you, one of the most amazing stats from this game that I think is sort of the underreported thing about the game, yes, Duke scored 94 points. We're not going to lose many games when we score 94 points. Um, And that's a huge number. But the significant thing about this game was that Notre Dame only scored 60 because Notre Dame is one of the best offensive teams in the country. We said on the preview coming into this game that Notre Dame is like a top 20 offensive team. And... I mean, they only got 60 points in a game that was played at a pretty high pace. Uh, there was a fascinating stat I saw. So I was looking at some really advanced stats that break down, you know, where you take your shots and how how well you hit your shots. Duke was 21 of 24 on shots sort of at the rim, around the rim, you know, within, within three to five feet of the basket. 21 of 24. Basically, Notre Dame wasn't able to block any shots. They weren't able to contest shots that we took in that area, you know, right there in the paint, right around the, the, the rim. 21 of 24. Notre Dame was 13 of 26. They only hit half of their shots that were taken at the rim. That's because Duke was blocking shots. Duke was getting in the way and disrupting what Notre Dame, you know, was trying. we were contesting everything. If you only hit 50% of your shots at the rim, you're in huge trouble. What we saw in this game, I think, was a return of the Duke defense that has been that was so effective earlier in, in December and January um, that has kind of gone away to some extent lately. Uh, when Duke plays defense like that, Duke wins basketball games. Period. End of story. Move on to the next question.
3: It was very it, like, especially in the second half. That there's a the stretch of like what four or five minutes where the lead stretched from maybe, like, 13 or 14 to, like, 25 in the blink of an eye because our defense was just on point that entire so You were mentioning that stat, 21 of 24 at the rim. That includes, like, a couple where uh, Vernon Carey got a long, like, pass that he – somehow was able to corral before it went out of bounds and try to heave up a, an alley-oop that would have been a miraculous alley-oop. And he just barely missed it, and then someone else would tip it back in. So really, when you're talking about 21-24, we were even, it felt to me, more efficient than even that, which is an incredible stat that you showed. Um, Sam, I want to go to you. What did you see from this game? You were on press row for this game. So tell me, take back what you, uh, what you saw for your vantage point. I'm glad that Jason
1: came back to touch on the defense because I think – that was the more impressive part of this game. The offensive explosion from Duke is great. I don't know how replicable it is. Even Javin Delorier was able to hit a three pointer in this game. That's not. That's not part of Duke's standard. Uh, Whoa, what, game what's, plan. The over-under? what's the over under?
4: What's the over under on Javin Delorier threes on the season? None. Has he ever over? even taken one before? <laughs> I don't. I, I think. I mean. I feel like. I think he's. A, I think year, he's attempted one. Yeah, early last year he took a couple. I, like especially. He's not I, taking. He's not taking three-pointers. Duke is up
1: by, you know, 25 points at least. So that's not – I want to set aside the the shooting in this game because I think it's just way too much on the, you know, on the positive end for us to say, well, that's what Duke's going to look like. That's the very best version of Duke's offense minus Cassius Stanley. I think the defense is the more impressive thing, and we will get in a second – to some of the locker room audio that I was able to capture. But one of the things you're going to hear from the players is that they all were very conscious of clogging the passing lanes, playing what you might call old school Duke defense, the kind you might see from the late nineties, early two thousands teams where it's all about, you know, containing on the perimeter, the the passing lanes and preventing opponents from getting the ball sort of deep in the post or, or being able to swing the ball around really quickly. That, Defensive pressure is the thing that I was really interested in talking to some of the players about. So I went in the locker room after the game and was able to talk to Vernon Carey and Jordan Goldwire about this. You're about to hear some audio from them about how Duke was able to apply defensive pressure in this game, especially in the absence of Cassius Stanley. Hey Vern, uh, another great game for you tonight. Even got the uh, got to hit the three. Um, what did it feel like to come out and just really, really lay it on thick against a uh, against this Notre Dame team?
2: Um, just coach, coach, uh, coach has been on, been on me since the FSU game because. Um, I, f- I felt like I didn't play as well as I um, could have um, personally, and he's just been on me all week, and I'm doing extra work with Coach Nate, and just taking care of my body in the training room, and it just paid off um, today.
1: What was the defensive game plan that made it so that you guys were able to jump out to such a quick
2: lead? Um, <clears throat> our game plan, especially for Mooney uh, and, and Durham, just, um, we were just icing the ball, uh, ball screens and just trying to uh, recover back to, uh, we were tagging and recovering back to Mooney and uh, Durham, but I feel like um, overall, especially um, especially in the second half, we did a good job um, just um, getting getting stops and then um, capitalizing on on their um, misses. Really,
1: how'd you like the, all your guards around you being able to get so many steals tonight? what was that related to, uh, to that kind of pressure you were talking about?
2: Yeah, um, our game plan for the guards um, just uh, was just to just uh, deny the ball, um, deny the ball in the passes. So Jay Gold did, uh, they, Jay Gold, um, AO. I mean, every every guard on our team uh, stepped up big time today, so they paid off.
3: I'm sure there's no causation, correlation, but Zion walks up, seems like everybody wants the can of three or do something big out there. Everybody kind of stepped their game up a tad more even after that. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, I mean, just um, former players coming back, it's just everyone stepped up. I mean, just the former players coming back, especially it it excites uh, us players too. So um, I feel like we um, just stepped it it up uh, big time in the second half.
1: Defensive pressure was turned up tonight. Uh what do you attribute that to and, and
3: how did you guys prepare defensively for this team? Yeah, um we just prepare um to get out in passing lane, try to um, disrupt their offense. They like to play at a slow pace so uh, we knew coming in that uh, trying to speed them up was something that we were going to try to do and get out and run and uh, that's something that we did.
1: Have you been feeling more comfortable shooting the ball in recent games? It feels like you're getting open shots, teams are letting you have them and you're, it seems like you're making more of them. Yeah. Um, what's that What's that change?
3: Yeah, um, just confidence in uh, work. I've um, been putting some work in with coaches before the
2: Coach Carroll before the games and so uh, we know that teams might lead me to go double burn and uh, just having the confidence. My teammates got the confidence this me coach staff, so uh, the ball's been going in and it feels good.
1: At the beginning of the season, did you expect to be shooting this much, or is this this really on you on the on that
3: development? Um, I mean, I, I trusted my work, so I mean, for me to be able to see the ball go in, it feels good. I mean, I always had confidence myself, so yeah, cool. Thank you.
1: So I think you get a good sense from Kerry as the big man who obviously played a huge role in this game as he has most of the season, but also from Jordan Goldwire who has really risen up to, I think be sharing the lead guard duties with Trey Jones. I mean, there was one possession where Jordan Goldwire felt like he was just given a task of, all right, go hound the, the ball handler until you, until you get the ball out of his hands and rattle him so much that he's just going to avoid you later. So I think you got a good sense from both of those guys that Duke had a really strong defensive game plan and that they were able to clog the lane against Notre Dame. They were able to to disrupt the passing lanes and, and really frustrate, as you said, Jason, that Notre Dame offense that is usually pretty good at finding, finding holes and, and finding good shots. They weren't able to do that on Saturday, leading Duke to get a lot of runouts, a lot of steals, and able to sort of demoralize the Irish such that the last ten minutes of the game were were kind of a joke. The other thing <laughs> that was kind of cool in here, and, and that I think is highlighted if you look at the the progression of the lead throughout the game, was the arrival of Zion Williamson. I don't know how prominently this came through on the broadcast. I assume that it did because they talked oh, about oh, it prominently. Oh, yeah, yeah. So every so every five
3: if, seconds they would flash to him. So if you've been in
1: Cameron any time in the last couple of years, along with Duke sort of ramping up the whole brotherhood branding one of the ways that they exhibit that in the stadium is that during one of the timeouts the pa announcer will say all right folks let's say hello to all the former players that are here in the house with us and they'll start going through the guys and they'll start with the older less prominent ones and work their way up so that you know the last guys they always mention are are like the most famous guys so The announcer, you know, went through some of the players like guys I've never heard of, I guess, who their pictures make it look like they're from the 70s or maybe even the 60s. And then they get to and say hello to Tyus Jones and everyone goes crazy and say hello to Quinn Cook and everyone goes crazy. And then the PA announcer said, and I think Zion Williamson just stepped into the building because he had walked in in the middle of the second half he i guess he had like just arrived at the stadium so people were people were losing their minds about that and yes i'm sure that the camera was flashing to him afterwards i had a good vantage point on him and he was he was eating it up like as soon as he walked in all the other players all the players on the court were like all right time to perform for zion which is when everyone started getting steals and goldwire turned up the pressure and Javon Delorier started hitting threes and cats and dogs were living together just because Zion was in the building <laughs> watching the game. And that he was when that- he was having such a good time. He was sitting with Quinn Cook and they were laughing it up uh, on the, on the sideline as, as the Duke lead was growing. It, it was, it was one of the cooler things I think I've seen, uh, you know, from just like having a, a famous spectator in the stands, you know, a year ago and was in uniform playing for this team. And now he is such a huge celebrity that just his presence in Cameron gets the team going like that.
3: It was on ESPN. They basically, once he came in, they showed him anytime there was a break in the, in the action, whether it was a foul, a timeout out of bounds, uh, Change possession, even a missed shot. Sometimes they were zooming in on him, Rating, and he baby. just had that Zion. They just had the Zion face hog. on. Yeah, he just had the I, Zion I, face on. It was, it was just great.
1: I will say that before they let the media into the locker room after the game, all the former players ran in there to hang out with the guys, and it was it was rather noisy. Uh, I don't know exactly <laughs> what was going on in the locker room before we showed up, but they were they were clearly enjoying themselves. Everyone was everyone was all smiles after this one.
3: Real quickly before, you know, we, we touched a lot on the defense. I want to talk about a particular point on offense, and then I know Jason uh, wants to talk about the adjustments that we had to make last minute with Cassius Stanley being out. But first, I want to talk about the turnovers or the reduced turnovers that we had. The last few games, we had been talking about our concern for how many times we had turned the ball over. In this game, we only turned the ball over nine times. And really, when it comes to turnovers, it those are things that are momentum killers. And when we had that long, deep run in the second half where, like you said, everything was coming together, one thing that was not stifling that momentum was turnovers. And I think that is that is what you want to see from any team. But really, it was very good to see them focus on that and reduce the amount of turnovers that they had, especially considering the last few weeks. They've been averaging about 15, 16 turnovers a game. Nine is way better, and that leads to a lot of, You know shots that we're taking, and as of last night, we were very efficient with the basketball on offense. So that was something that I hope will continue over the next week. Jason, before the game, we were supposed to have Casha Stanley. Let's talk about him for a minute. We were supposed to have Casha Stanley start during warmups, or I guess preceding the team warmups. He had an issue where I guess he collided with the manager. It's, It's unclear what what really happened, but. He ended up being scratched from this game. He came back in the second half, was in uniform on the bench, but at that point it was a 25, 30-point lead, so he obviously did not play. Talk about the adjustments that we had to make last minute and how that affected us, uh, good or bad. How how would you see it?
4: I mean, the thing that I saw that changed as a result of Cassius Stanley not being in the game was Duke was a little bit bigger because uh, one of the things we heard was that Matthew Hurt got the start as a result of Cassius not being around and uh, you know I've talked I feel like uh, other than Trey Jones and Vernon Carey who are both in contention to be all-Americans and, and to be ACC player of the year and are clearly uh the two best players on this on this team I feel like I've talked about Matthew Hurt more than anybody else in recent weeks because I think he's such a key key player for this Duke team with his ability to to play outside present m- mismatches on the inside well and it's um, been
1: Jason, it's been such a bummer that I feel like we know how good Matthew Hurt is supposed to be, and he hasn't quite lived up to that, but this was an opportunity for him in this game.
4: Yes, yes, and and I was going to say I love that coming off his worst week of the season, I mean, let's be very clear. The games against um, B.C. and North Carolina a week ago, where he he plays 11 minutes against B.C., he plays only six minutes against North Carolina— uh, he scored a grand total of two points in those two games—a total of two points. He was a non-factor in every way that you can be a non-factor. Um, for him to bounce back from the, from those two games to have the week he had this week, where he plays 18 minutes against Florida State, 27 minutes against Notre Dame, scores 12 points in both of those games, just looked really confident with his shot. I mean, hit some clutch free throws. He was at, he was four for seven on three pointers. Um, I, I thought Matt, uh, Matthew Heard had a great week and look, I, obviously you never want a player to to go down and get hurt or anything like that. And uh, Cassius Stanley, Duke is a much worse team without Cassius Stanley. I, I was talking about how Trey and Vernon are Duke's two best players. I think a pretty good argument can be made that Cassius Stanley is our number is our third best player. So missing him matters a lot, but the fact that we're able to miss him still crush Notre Dame by thirty plus points, and also really get lots of extra confidence back for Matthew Hurt and have him playing well is huge, huge bonus. Because the best Duke team, the, the Duke team that cuts down the nets, is a Duke team that features Matthew Hurt playing around twenty minutes a game, hitting a couple threes, and being a really difficult matchup for the other team. I, I you know, as much as I know, other guys are key players. I'm not sure that Duke is able to reach its potential without Matthew Hurt playing that kind of way, the way he played this week.
1: Matthew Hurt is the, is, should be one of the starters on this team. If they are, if everyone plays as well as they should, he should be one of the five best players. And he fits very naturally at a position where it feels like Duke is struggling this season, right? Carey is really holding it down at at the center position, but none of the big wings seem to be able to create space inside the way that Hurt should be able to, right? Wendell Moore sometimes is able to do that. Stanley is sometimes able to do that. But we'd really prefer those guys to be around the perimeter and not closer to the basket.
3: Yeah. And when it comes to Matthew Hurt, I I think Jason, you're right. Last week was terrible. And this week he came back in a big way. And Really, that versatility is what any coach would need in a national championship team. They need somebody who's going to can do the dirty work, can go outside and go inside, who can draw the best defender uh, out on them and create open spaces for other people, and and really just by his presence on the court, be someone who can make an impact on every single game. I think we're seeing Matthew Hurt work through that in a freshman year, where we would expect him he has the ability to have an impact on every single game, but he just obviously as a freshman, that's that's a lot to expect from one kid. And we're seeing those, you know, those ups and downs. And I think going forward, if we can keep this confidence going, this is the right time to get it right. We're, we're, we're almost at March. We have a few more games left in the regular season. And then every game is really, really, really going to count. So if Matthew Hurt could continue this and build on this confidence, we will have a much different and a much better basketball team come March.
4: Yeah, and the other quick thing I would say about Matthew Hurt is I thought this was a really nice defensive game for Matthew Hurt. He most of the time he was in the game, not all the time, but most of the time he was in the game. He was matched up with John Mooney, who is Notre Dame's stud, and it seems crazy to say a guy who got 19 points and nine rebounds, which is what John Mooney did, 19 and nine. It seems crazy to say that we did a really good job defending him, but John Mooney's such a good ball player that 19 and nine, it, it took him 16 shots to get those 19 points. You know, he didn't, he, he, you know, he, he, he had to shoot a pretty fair amount to get those 19 points. I think Duke did a really, really nice job on him. And I thought Matthew Hurt, I was specifically looking at how Matthew Hurt would defend him. And I thought Hurt did a really nice job on him. And that's one of the toughest matchups that Hurt's going to have all year.
1: The one last thing that I'll point out about Duke's performance in this game, I feel like we kind of yada yada over the offense. It is notable that on a night when the defense was so good for Duke, the some of the key players, Kerry, Trey Jones, even Jordan Goldwire, were so efficient from the floor, and it is really great to see all of that coming together. That's been, you know, there will be nights when one or two of those guys will be really good. It finally feels like the offense is able to click with multiple players being able to be efficient from the field. You guys already touched on it, but I think it's important to highlight that that, that is a big development for this Duke team to have multiple key offensive players clicking at the same time.
3: Okay, guys, we have a midweek uh, matchup for us this week. Uh, we're going to play North Carolina State, one of those games that sometimes can be tricky, especially with them being one of those rivals from down the road and Raleigh. So, Sam, I'm going to start with you. What can we expect this week on Wednesday when we take on the Wolfpack? What are you looking for uh, from us in this game?
1: Duke has occasionally had troubles with NC State, particularly in Raleigh. State obviously considers North Carolina like their most important rival, but that doesn't mean that their fans and their players aren't excited to steal a game from Duke. So hopefully – it's just a game where where Duke locks down. They they do have a couple days to recover from this Notre Dame game. You could see the benefit of rest with the long layoff after Florida State that Duke had, you know, coming into the Notre Dame game. Hopefully, the same holds true for the game in Raleigh on Wednesday. Duke gets three days off and then you know a trip where they don't have to get on an airplane and they just have to get in the bus and go basically down the street to Raleigh. So hopefully, the uh, being on the road now, having been at home for a couple games, doesn't throw Duke off the, I think that the thing I'm most looking for is to see kind of going back to my most recent point. I want to see those offensive players able to, you know, continue to, to play in rhythm together and, and get good shots. NC state is a team that Duke should play really well against. Uh, they're sort of a fringy bubble team this season Duke is playing as well as anybody in the country right now and should be able to dispatch the Wolfpack easily if they're clicking. I think the trouble will be if Duke isn't able to continue to apply pressure on the defensive end the way that they were against Notre Dame. So I'm kind of looking for for both sides of that. I didn't I haven't gotten a chance really to watch a lot of state recently, so I don't know exactly, you know, what the the um, what the keys from them are. But uh, I'm going to be watching this Duke team to to see if all this progress is real or if it's just Notre Dame having a bad night in Cameron.
3: So NC State really doesn't have a big win on their schedule. Every ranked team that they've played this season, they've lost, although some of them have been close games. But they're still fifth in the ACC. they're They're probably one big win away from at least in their mind, making a challenge for uh, trying to put themselves in contention for that NCAA tournament. Jason, what players from NC State should we be looking out for when we play them on Wednesday night?
4: Well, I mean, the, the, the biggest thing for State is their, is their senior point guard, Markel Johnson, who uh, State, State is really good when Markel Johnson is able to hit his threes. And he has not hit his, th- he's only hitting 25% of them this year. And he's been better than that at other times in his career. Um, This this NC State team needs for them to beat Duke. They're going to need Markel Johnson to have one of his best games of the year. And they're probably going to need him. He he shoots the most threes on their team. They're not a team that shoots a lot of three pointers. Um, They're going to have to uh, they're going to have to be very good from three point range which they haven't been all year, they're like 250th in the nation in three-point percentage. They're going to have to be way, way better than that to have a real chance against Duke. Uh, You know, the the matchup I think that's sort of going to be the most interesting um, is uh, is State's big man, D.J. Funderburk, against Vernon Carey. Uh, D.J. Funderburk is really efficient on the inside. Doesn't shoot a ton, but he hits almost 65% of his two-point field goals, 65%. So he is right in there with, with Vernon Carey in terms of being a super efficient guy on the inside. Uh, You know, if uh, the formula for state to win this game is probably Markel Johnson hits more threes, you know, a higher percentage of threes than usual. DJ Funderburk at least duels Vernon Carey to a standoff. And, and I get, you know, and someone like Braxton Beverly or CJ Bryce also has a really good game that may be asking too much of this NC state team. Donald, as you pointed out, they, they really, they don't have any, Any win that you look at, and you go, oh, that's that's an impressive win that that shows that this is a team that's capable of playing with, you know, a tournament level team. I mean, their their guess their best win is probably Wisconsin. They beat Wisconsin in the ACC Big Ten Challenge, which is a nice win. But Wisconsin is such an up and down team. And that game was at state. Wisconsin is so much better at home than on the road. Other than that, there, there isn't a really like their next best win after that is probably they beat Notre Dame, I guess. Actually, they beat Virginia. I forgot they beat Virginia. But this state team is currently seven and six in the ACC. That's not going to get you to the dance. They, they, they've they've got to find a way to probably win, uh, you know, of their remaining six ACC contests. They, they, they got to win. I'm sorry, they're seven and seven. I said they were seven. they're seven and seven in the ACC. They lost tonight to Boston College. Um, of their final six contests, they've got to win at least four of them. And, uh, and, you know, and they've got to have a, a, a big win. They've got Duke and Florida State at home. So they've got chances to get a marquee win. But if they don't win the, one of those two games, they're, they're going to be going to the NIT. And, and I, again, I just I think it's going to take several guys from state having among their best games of the year.
3: Yeah, they only have a couple more chances, like you said. I think they play us a second time in Cameron. Obviously, that would be a difficult task for them, hopefully. Uh, but Wednesday night is really going to be one where I always look at that game. As, Jay, as Sam mentioned, it's a game we've we've lost to them in Raleigh before, and it's because they show up for us. And that's one of these games where this is it. This is this is going to be. the, I mean, of their the guys that they consider rivals, this is their Super Bowl for the year because UNC's not that good. So this is going to be the one that they're going to get up for. Uh, Wednesday night going to be a raucous atmosphere, and I think the energy needs to be there from the jump because that's usually where we falter in raleigh so wednesday night 9 p.m is a late start and we will see if our guys can do it we're going to talk about a couple of other things that get to our player of the week and parting shots after a word from these sponsors so we're back here on the duke basketball report podcast episode 191 We have a little update from uh, the NCAA. Mark Emmert, the president, went to Congress last week. Uh, You probably missed it because Congress has been a little busy lately here in D.C. But, Jason, you have the scoop on what was discussed uh, in Congress over this pay-to-players ongoing phenomenon, ongoing saga. Give us an update on what you saw last week from Mark Emmert here in D.C. in Congress.
4: Yeah, sure. So uh, I just want to say, first of all, I consider – advocating for paying the players, finding a way to compensate them fairly, to be a personal mission of mine on this podcast and a personal mission of this podcast in general. Uh, I, I think everyone knows the current system is unfair. It does not work and it must be changed. So Mark Emmert, the president of the NCAA, went before a Senate panel this past week and he virtually got down on his knees and begged Congress to please pass some national law that will govern the way players will deal with name, likeness, and image, um, and, and and the way the NCAA uh, is able to maintain eligibility for players while still allowing them to be compensated for their name, image, and likeness. Um, he asked for a national standard. He said different states, there are 25 different states that are considering different laws, and the NCAA says, oh no, we're powerless. We can't control this. All these different states are doing things Folks, if you have a child in the car, cover their ears because I'm about to use foul language. Bullshit. Wait, wait,
3: wait, 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 yeah. wait. wait, Before you do that, before yes. you do that. Okay, now do it. Get him, get him, get him, Jason.
4: Bullshit. It is complete <laughs> bullshit from Mark Emmert to say that the NCAA can't police this on their own. He's totally making shit up. The truth of the matter is this. The NCAA Board of Governors, who are Mark Emmert's bosses, could make a change to this as quickly as they want to. And what they could simply do is they could say, hey, you know that California law that everyone seems to really like, that law that, says, that goes into effect in 2023 that says players are allowed to make money off their name, image, and likeness? We're going to make that the rule for every NCAA state, every NCAA institution. And you know what? Every one of those other states, those 24 other states that are considering different laws, they would drop it instantly. They'd go, oh, good. Thank you for dealing with this. We can go on to other things like taxes and building new roads and the stuff that legislators are supposed to do. They don't want to have to deal with this. The only reason different states are dealing with it is because the NCAA is too cowardly and too corrupt to deal with it on their own. So Mark Emmert, bullshit. He says he's worried about a level playing field. He says he's worried about rich schools being able to pay players more than poor schools. Boo-hoo. Have you seen the facilities and the perks at a big football or basketball program compared to a small one? Duke goes to Hawaii every other year. We go to we go on foreign trips every other year. How many teams in the Atlantic Sun, the MEAC, the Missouri Valley are doing that? Duke players get tons of free shoes and gear from Nike. They appear on television enough to be household names to even the most casual college hoops fans. This is to say nothing of guys who play football for Ohio State or Michigan or Alabama or Georgia or Clemson. The idea that Mark Emmert is powerless to do anything because he doesn't know how to handle dealing with rich schools versus poor schools, again, bullshit. 99.3% of the top 100 football recruits pick a Power 5 conference team. The big schools already have a recruiting advantage, and no one seems to care about that. So the idea that the NCAA is now saying, oh, no, the fact that some of these big schools may be able to pay them a little more than the poor, than the small schools, that's the reason they can't put this in place. Again, Mark Emmert, bullshit.
1: By yeah. proxy, these programs are able to continue offering the best, right? It's just a matter of, are they getting it via the best facilities or... The coaches having the nicest planes to recruit them in or the players taking the nicest <laughs> planes to the games that they're playing in, you know, the, the, the money finds its way to the programs one way or another. It's just a matter of us deciding that some of that money deserves to go directly to the players as opposed to the rest of the infrastructure that's in place around them to keep the system running.
3: First of all, Jason, I, I think I think the kids can now tune this back in, but that was perfect. The fact that Mark Emmert wants to go to Congress, Congress, Congress can't pass a resolution congratulating a national champion without there being an objection. And he wants them to institute a blanket standard of restricting the money and the amount of money that college scholarship athletes can earn. I think is just preposterous. I mean. We're already having the has versus the have-nots, and now we are telling people, because you're good at a certain industry, you can't make money off of your name. If I was good at chemistry, believe me, I can build a chemistry set and sell it or have a cure or create a drug or something and make billions off of it while I'm in college. If I play an instrument, I can go on tour while in school and make money off of my
4: craft you can give lessons. You could give lessons. If you're a smart lessons, if you're good at math, you can give. you can be a math tutor. You can make good money doing that. If I'm absolutely. good at basketball, I cannot be a basketball tutor. I cannot be a basketball coach on the side. It's stupid. Right.
3: And, and, and he's actually going to Congress to advocate for them to pass a law restricting that. And we know, and honestly, I, I'll be real with it. We're going to go out. We're going to go there. We know who is targeting. It's targeting the football players and it's targeting the basketball players, of which most of them are a certain persuasion. He's going after some people's livelihoods in the only way that he knows how. And I think that is wrong, first of all. The just blanket wrong. But really, on top of that, it really shows. A I'll say
4: it. It's it, a bunch of old white men telling young black men they're not allowed to make money.
3: And telling them what to do. and And telling them that they should be okay and they should be. You know, grateful that they have a scholarship to attend a, a Division One university, and I think that's stupid. I think that's preposterous, and and they know what they're trying to do. But hopefully, if Congress is, well, I can't say if Congress is smart because they're not. I'm not trying to be political, but you know, on, either, on either side of the other side aisle, we got some dumb dumb folks up here in, in in district. But these guys need to wake up, and they need to get with the program. It's 2020. We can't have people advocating Congress to hold people back. I think that's the dumbest part of all, and that he's trying to hold tens of thousands of college athletes back simply for the simple fact that they know how to pick up a ball and play that sport really well.
4: So if I can, I'll I'll, I'll take the last word on this if you guys don't mind, because this is my baby. (laughs) Please, please do. Uh, So there are two other things really quickly that I wanna note about all of this. The Associated Press has done a little bit of digging and they found out that over the course of the past year, the NCAA has dramatically stepped up the amount of lobbying dollars that it's that it's putting out there to get Congress to work on its behalf. That's what lobbying is. When you lobby, when you pay a lobbyist, it's so they will go talk to a congressperson and get that congressperson to do your job for you. So the NCAA spent half a million dollars. lobbying in the past year. That's the most it has spent on lobbying in more than half a decade. and Also, for the first time ever, conferences are helping the NCAA out and doing lobbying as well. The ACC, our conference, the ACC never had a lobbying budget until last year, when suddenly we invested $200,000 in a DC lobbyist. The Big 12, had a nominal $5,000 a quarter lobbyist on retainer, which means he wasn't doing anything for them other than being on retainer. They suddenly last year ramped that up to $100,000 in spending. Between the NCAA, the ACC, and the Big 12, they're spending three quarters of a million dollars to make sure Congress does what they want. And the players, they have zero dollars for lobbying. There are a couple organizations out there that are trying to represent the players' interests. But we are talking about a one-sided situation. And it is offensive and terrible that the NCAA is doing this. And the last thing I want to say about this really, really quickly, Seth Greenberg, they were talking about this whole thing a little bit on College Game Day over the weekend. And Seth Greenberg, who, who doesn't often say things that I find interesting and insightful, said something that was really insightful. He said he personally knows several coaches members of the profession that he was in for a long time who have begun talking to boosters and alumni about setting up a system so the moment the NCAA allows name likeness and image to be a part of compensating players the moment that happens these programs are already ready they already have a system in place so they will be able to say hey player a Come to my school and we're going to give you X, Y, and Z. We're going to arrange this endorsement for you. We're going to pay you for this thing. You're going to get to sell this many jerseys, all that other kind of stuff. Whatever it is the NCAA allows, these folks are going to have systems in place from day one. And I guarantee you, there's no question in my mind that Duke University is one of those programs that's already figured out or figuring out exactly how they deal with this because they know it's coming. Mark Emmert may want to deny it. He may think he's got his finger in the dike holding back the waters but the waters are coming. They're coming by 2023 when that California law goes into effect or sooner.
3: It's gonna be just a final thing. you mentioned all the money and lobbying and all the money that they're trying to do. When it comes to people and billions of dollars, billionaires and billionaire organizations, to them money is no object to keep money in their pocket and out of yours. And that's what we're seeing right now in college basketball. Okay, guys, we have come to our Player of the Week. A uh, reminder, we did have a game earlier this week. You can take that game into account as well as the game last night. So, Sam, who is your Player of the Week?
1: I think for the full set of contributions this week, he wasn't the flashiest player, but we talked about how hard he played against Florida State, and I think against Notre Dame, he, was, he really showed out. At both ends of the floor i'm giving player of the week this week to good jordan goldwire that's
3: a good pick jason what do you got
4: i don't know how after i talked about him earlier i can't give it to matthew hurt i really i mean i i'm giving it to matthew hurt not because he was the best player of the week because he wasn't but he had a bounce back week and and he was at a moment look it's really easy to have to get down on yourself and not have the intestinal fortitude to say I'm not playing a lot, I'm not playing well. That's okay. I'm going to work harder, as opposed to sort of going into a shell. And what Matthew Hurt did was he took last week and he tossed it in the trash can and had a good week this week. So I'm going to go with Matthew Hurt as my player of the week.
3: I like that, Jason. I I, I was hoping that you would select him because it means that two of us did. Uh, I'm also going with Matthew Hurt, and for the reason, a lot of the reasons that you mentioned, but specifically because. We needed a bid week from him last week. We didn't get one. It, it worked out. But this week, he kind of came back and really took charge. And again, I feel like that confidence is something that's building within him. And, and and I'm really hoping that it just keeps going up and up over the next few weeks as we get into March. But for this week, he was definitely a guy that was maybe an unsung hero to to, to these games. So I will consider him my player of the week. All right, now it is time for parting shots, and we alluded to it last week. Jason teed it up for us last week, and now he gets to talk about it. Jason, your parting shot.
4: I'm going to introduce you to the research of a gentleman named Luke Benz. Luke is a data scientist who graduated from Yale in 2019 with a Bachelor of Science in Applied Mathematics. What that means is he's able to talk about things that I don't understand at all. But he did, for his dissertation, for his BS, he did an extensive study of the value of the timeout in basketball. And what Luke found is Is that that, Roy Williams. Yes. Roy Williams is an idiot because what Luke found (laughs) is if you look at the expect, now he, he does all this math that I can't even begin to follow. But if you look at the expected number of points, a team should get over a five minute period. If a team calls timeout, they generally get between 1.5 and 2.2 extra points over the next five minutes as a result of calling that timeout. Now, it's it's worth noting that that you know depending on where it is in the game that can be different. I mean, we're not saying if you call a timeout and there's 30 seconds left in the game, you're you know you're not going to automatically get an extra point and a half to two points. Um, it's expected value, and it, and and Luke says that taking timeouts. Earlier, especially in the first half, he thinks is a very valuable thing. Correcting course when it's going bad early in the game, Luke says, is a hugely important team. He says teams calling a timeout perform better for about five minutes following that timeout. That's really significant. And he said you know, the least valuable timeout is the use it or lose it timeout right before halftime. Coach K does that a lot. He just hasn't needed to call a timeout the whole first half. And so he'll call a timeout with 30 seconds left to design a, a good play. But he said, other than those timeouts and the timeouts at the very, very end of a game where you're literally just stopping the clock, he said that, you know, calling timeouts is actually something really valuable. Again, one and a half to 2.2 points over the course of five minutes. And I just think it's, it's fascinating that someone dug into the numbers enough to come up with this. This is not him guessing. This is him putting together formulas that like would make my head spin, but this is what he came up with. So a hat tip to Luke Benz, the Yale graduate who says Roy Williams is an idiot for hoarding his timeouts.
3: That was really worth the wait. Thank you for that, Jason. That was awesome. Um, Sam, do you have a parting shot for us today? I came across
1: a couple of highlights of some of the incoming recruits that Duke has for Nexon's basketball team and wanted to just quickly highlight them one was from uh incoming forward Jalen Johnson who I, I guess has had to transfer schools or or programs just to yeah. as a, as he was of a at couple at weeks ago he was at
4: IMG Academy and he had he got hurt and things didn't work out for him and he went back to his hometown and he's playing again now just as of a couple of weeks ago yeah
1: oh he's playing well anyway I we we can link to this or you can look this up. There is an awesome highlight of him on the run out doing a fast break dunk and throwing the ball between his legs. I know we're going to get to the slam dunk contest in a second. So uh, look out for, for Jalen Johnson on the break next year. The other one that is just from tonight, a highlight of uh, incoming point guard Jeremy Roach, who plays at Paul VI in D.C., so I don't know, Donald, if you've ever gotten to see Jeremy Roach, but they were playing uh, national powerhouse DeMatha tonight. Uh, they won the game, and uh, Jeremy Roach was was fantastic against against DeMatha. So a uh, couple of Duke guys making big impacts uh, visually and then also really for their teams and getting big wins uh, here in their senior seasons.
3: Uh, that DeMatha, Paul VI game that you just mentioned was one that I had circled when I saw that Jeremy Roach was playing in that league this year, uh, I just just got back out of town. So, and with this, it, it just didn't work out. But he has been very dominant in that Jalen Johnson dunk that you mentioned, Duke Basketball's Twitter actually posted it. So, just go in there, scroll until you find someone hurtling through the air with the ball between his legs. That would be Jalen Johnson next year's incoming recruit. My the, part- the, oh, the fancy. By the way, the fancy highlight for Jeremy
1: Roach is a three pointer that he took from like nearly half court tonight against Dematha. It's uh, it's pretty wild, like T- Trey Young style
3: off the bus range. I like it.
4: That's right. But but by the way, all five Duke recruits for next year are going to be playing in the Jordan Brand Classic. All five of them made the Jordan Brand. All five of them are on the same team. There is a very very real chance at some point. We will see Jeremy Roach at point guard, DJ Stewart at at shooting guard, Jalen Johnson at small forward, Jamin Brakefield at power forward, and Mark Williams at center. You will very likely see all five of the Duke guys on the floor at the same time. And by the way, all the Carolina recruits in the game, I think there are three Carolina recruits in the Jordan brand game, all on the other team.
3: Well, they can get served starting from the Jordan brand. They can do it if they really want to hear that life and see what next year is going to be like. They can go ahead and play in that game. Otherwise, I would fake an injury and maybe shoot for the McDonald's All-American game or something. Um, My parting shot, Jason, you talked about it earlier, and I'm going to really talk about it. It is the slam dunk contest. And last night, I will start off by saying that this slam dunk contest last night, especially the, the dunk off basically between Aaron Gordon and Derek Jones Jr. was one of the best I have ever seen. These guys came with it last night, having said that. There is some controversy in the slam dunk contest because the winner did not no, 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 win. No, no. There
4: there's there was no there's no controversy about it because everyone knows what should have happened, and that is not what happened.
3: I, I will I will again say the winner of the contest did not actually win the contest. Once again, Aaron Gordon was robbed for the second time. Now, you might recall a few years ago there was the Again, one of the best dunk-offs we've ever seen between Aaron Gordon and Zach Levine. Zach Levine ended up winning that dunk contest, although most people there are probably like, you know what, Aaron Gordon probably got him. I was not mad at that one. Zach Levine had three of the best dunks that we've ever seen, and Aaron Gordon had the other two. That's fine. I, I, I'll, I'll take that as a toss-up. But this one, Aaron Gordon had three dunks that are all-time dunks. And he still didn't win. He had five fifty dunks. He needed six apparently, because uh, also, and that sixth dunk is him jumping over seven foot five Taco Fall and dunking the ball, clearing Wait, him. What? what did you say? And he dunking dunked him.
4: over a seven foot five guy—that's never been done before. Seven foot
3: five. And that was enough for a forty-seven, ladies and gentlemen. One short of the forty-eight that Derrick Jones got for stepping one foot in and doing a windmill tomahawk, a la Zach Levine. So again, Aaron Gordon got beat twice by the same dunk. This one wasn't as good as Zach Levine's, but it was still pretty good. I will give Derek Jones that. And this is really, this controversy is not about Derek Jones and his ability to dunk the ball. He was fantastic last night. He had a couple of dunks that made people jump out of their seats, just like everybody else. But Aaron Gordon getting robbed twice is a travesty. He should have two trophies on his shelf, and instead he has zero. They asked him right afterwards if he was going to try for a third time. And he said, no, I've been robbed twice. There's no reason why I should do this thing a third time. And he's absolutely right. Because last night, there was some there was something fishy going on. And it, it, I don't want to say it ruined the contest because it was a really good contest. But it ruined the stigma of it. Because if the best dunker is not going to win, then why do we have a dunk contest? And I think and, and, and here's the thing. One thing that the reverberations of this will. Someone asked if uh, John Morant and Zion Williamson would do this next year. And John Morant has always, already said no. And everyone would say that next year, if those two enter the contest, everyone else should just back out and let those guys go at it. But if they're not going to do this, and it's because of this sort of thing where the system uh, with the judging, then that's a big problem. If the best dunkers are, are, are going to be basically scared away from this competition, then we shouldn't have it. The best bet is to revamp the scoring and also to get some judges in there that have won dunk contests and knows what it takes and knows what the difference is between a nine and a ten or a nine point five and a ten. And because if we did, Aaron Gordon would have two trophies right now and right now he has zero. And I think that's a travesty. No no participation trophies for the dunk contest. We gotta we gotta stretch out the
1: the scoring system here. I don't know if we need to add an eleven or we need to start giving out fives, but I agree with you. It's uh, it's silly if if guys are getting nearly perfect scores for dunks that are not nearly perfect dunks.
3: Um, there, I'm sorry. I will say I will say real quickly, Jason, that Dwight Howard, who came back from dunk contest, we all know he won with the Superman dunk about ten years ago. He recreated that same dunk. It wasn't as good as he did it before because he didn't catch it and actually throw it through, and he got a 49. Eric Gordon jumped over a seven foot five inch dude, and he got a 47. And, uh,
1: and the and and Dwight Howard was just was just sort of there for the nostalgia, I feel like, more than anything. Yep. Dwight he, Howard he is not new. He, <laughs> he is not the Dwight Howard of old. He's still really cool and, and can jump in ways that I cannot fathom, but not not the same level.
4: Look look, the, the way to know that this was a travesty, the way to know that, that this was wrong, is the expression on everyone's face when they showed the forty seven score for Aaron Gordon. It wasn't just Aaron Gordon reacting to it. You even saw Derek Jones Jr. being like, "Whoa, what? what? Really? Yeah, looked like was exactly like, really? like I didn't deserve to win that. I don't think like his buddies were like doing, dude, you didn't deserve to win."
3: <laughs> yeah, it was bad, and they need to get that together next year because that, in my opinion, is the highlight of the the All Star Skills competitions that are always in Saturday. Night. I think it's the best event that there is in the major leagues. Uh, I I would put the slam dunk contest in the home run derby together. Those two are leaps and bounds about everything else. But if it's not done right, and we've seen it in the home run derby too, if it's not done right, then it ruins the whole experience. And last night, I think the judging and how it was judged ruined the whole experience and it needs to be changed so that next year we get the, the guys in there that we know, we want to see. We want to see Zion Williamson. We want to see Jarvan Wright. We want to see Aaron Gordon come back and actually win this thing because he should have won too. And I think that in the end, this if they don't address this, this is going to be something that people are going to think about and some of these guys are going to back out and we're going to have uh, some of those dunk contests like we had a few years ago with four guys that nobody knows. Um, so that hopefully will change. But as we you know record right now, the All-Star game is going on. I think that that skills competition needs to be revamped.
4: Well, and I'll tell you something. I mean, you you brought up the reason that this is really unfortunate, which is if we never get to see Zion Williamson and John Morant, not even competing against each other, just in general, if we never get to see those guys doing a slam dunk contest, that's a real pity. I, I mean, they are so special, both of those guys, with their ability to get in the air and do unbelievable things. It would be a crime if we never got the treat of seeing them pull out the most creative most athletic thing they can do i, I hope that doesn't happen but i i fear that it will
3: yeah uh, we'll see what happens with it obviously the fallout is it was everything that was talked about today and as the uh sports talk shows jump up tomorrow morning and tomorrow afternoon that's all that's going to be discussed We'll kick it. We'll end it here uh, on episode 191 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. We will be back to you sometime later on the week. Obviously, we have that game Wednesday night in Raleigh against NC State. We will come back to you sometime after that. But until then, for Jason Evans in Atlanta and for Sam Klein in our beautiful Durham, North Carolina, I am Donald Wine. We will see you soon. And until then, and always, Duke Band, take us home.